0: Hi, this is Jonathan Berlin, and it's great to be here. And I'm going to be talking to you in the next 30 or so minutes about seven reasons to be optimistic about the future of radiology and radiologists. And as they go around and give talks, invariably, people say to me, well, the field is changing, healthcare is changing, reimbursements are declining. How do we remain competitive? How do we survive as an industry? And how do our practices thrive? And what I would like to do is to get people thinking about the fact that with each threat or with each change in the healthcare industry, there's also an opportunity there. And that's really what I would like to focus on. So I'd like to break these seven reasons down piece by piece, and we can take a look at them and realize that in many cases, there are opportunities to be had. And also, when we compare ourselves to other industries, there's some value in doing that because it basically gives us a little bit of perspective as to how we relate to the general population and how our jobs compare to the general population jobs. So we're going to talk about declining reimbursement, increasing workload, the potential for the commoditization of radiology, potential for outsourcing radiology, the somewhat declining job market, which is a relatively recent phenomenon, the potential for isolation, and the uncertain role of radiology in new payment systems. And we're going to talk about what those new payment systems mean. But I kind of wanted to put these things in perspective one by one. So I think it's important to first focus on declining reimbursement. And when we talk about declining reimbursement in radiology, it's certainly true that radiology reimbursements have been declining, and it's important to realize that this is on a case-by-case basis. So while there are some practices out there that basically may have seen their income stay flat or potentially even increase on a case-by-case basis. Radiology reimbursements have been declining. So for a particular CT scan or for a particular MRI exam, the amount that a facility gets for doing the procedure has gone down, and that's called the technical component the amount that a radiologist gets for interpreting the procedure has gone down as well, and that's called a professional component. So when we look at this slide of technical and professional, again, technical is what you receive for doing the procedure, and professional is what you receive for interpreting the procedure. Reimbursement cuts have occurred on both ends. So on the technical side, there was a cut that said that Facilities are going to receive the lesser amount of what the Medicare fee schedule pays versus the hospital outpatient prospective payment system, which basically means that what the government said was they said, look, it's not fair that if a hospital scans an outpatient that they should get less than potentially a freestanding imaging center. And so the cut behind that was to equalize those payments. There's also something called the multiple procedure payment reduction, which basically says that if you do a series of radiology tests on a patient in one episode, the amount that you are paid for subsequent tests goes down. And the theory behind that is that, let's say that you're doing a CT of the chest and the abdomen and the pelvis. Well, in theory, you're only gonna be using one set of sheets, let's say, or you may only be using one dose of contrast. And so what's happened is that the amount that you are paid to do for the subsequent study, the abdomen and pelvis, is actually less than what it would have been if you solely did an abdomen and pelvis alone. And those cuts have occurred on both the technical and more recently, the professional side. The other thing that's happened is that certain CPT codes have been revalued. So for instance, CT of the abdomen and pelvis used to be two separate procedures, and now it's classified as one procedure, and the combined value of that one code is less than the value of the two separate component codes. So in other words, this is a case where 2 plus 2 does not equal 4, 2 plus 2 equals 3. So CT abdomen and pelvis is valued at less than the separate component codes of CT of the abdomen and pelvis. Reimbursement cuts have also occurred on the Medicare conversion factor. And in general, what the Medicare conversion factor is, is it is the dollar amount that each relative value unit is worth. And so that has to do with something called the sustainable growth rate, which we're going to talk about. But in general, what it says is that the government has said that healthcare expenses can increase at a certain rate. And if they go above that rate, then in order to bring healthcare expense increases down to the accepted level, the value of every relative value unit has to go down to basically meet that line. And that is called the Medicare conversion factor. But when we do that, it's important to put compensation of radiologists and, in fact, all physicians in perspective in regards to the overall economic picture. So Victor Fuchs in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012 had a very interesting graph, and it was the United States per capita health expenditures from 1950 to 2007. And what we can see is that this is quite a trajectory. The line is basically continuous upslope from 1950 to 2007. And an interesting fundamental about a curve like this is you say to yourself, well, how long can this continue? can this continue basically to infinity? And of course, we all know the answer to that is no. And so something has to change to basically slow the curve of that line. The current way of phrasing that is to bend the cost curve. And I would imagine that you've heard some of the policymakers talk about that using that expression. Another way to look at this is what healthcare expenditures do in terms of gross domestic product. So in the same article, It basically talks about the fact that in 1950, healthcare expenditures accounted for only 4.6% of the gross domestic product, but in 2009, they accounted for more than 17%. And again, it's the same idea that are these healthcare expenditures, is the trajectory of these healthcare expenditures, basically, is it sustainable in the long term? And the answer to that is probably no. There probably needs to be a way to moderate that line. At the same time, we have to realize that physician incomes in general and to some extent specialist incomes have basically come under increased scrutiny. And why is that? Well, Alexandra Sifrin had a very interesting article where she took a look at a survey that was done that looked at what specialists earn compared to what primary care people earn. And not surprisingly, this data is probably familiar to many of us in the United States, that specialists are compensated higher than primary care specialties. Now, is that a problem? Well, it depends how you look at it. Certainly, specialists would say that they have undergone more intensive training or maybe their training is longer. Primary care people would say, well, that may be true, but in fact, we need to equalize the playing field. And when you're a policymaker, it can be looked at in a variety of ways. One of the questions that you might ask yourself is, does the fact that specialists in general, not in every instance, but in general, specialists are paid more, lead more people to go into specialty care medicine. And is that a problem? What's interesting is that if you compare the United States to Europe, so in the United States, there are more specialist physicians. In European countries, there are more generalist physicians, and the ratio varies, but some people say that it can be up to 80-20, so in the United States, it's around 80% specialist physicians, whereas in the European countries, it's around 80% generalist physicians, but those numbers, that's not an exact number. It tends to vary around that level. And again, does it matter? Well, I suppose it depends, but if you take a look at this from a population health standpoint, in other words, you look at costs overall, there is some thought that it's advantageous to have more generalists because that potentially leads to decreased costs because generalists in theory are keeping chronic disease under greater control. The idea is is that if a person, if a patient has to bounce around from specialist to specialist, The care might not be as streamlined, it might not be as cohesive, and it might not necessarily have the same overriding theme as where if a generalist sees this person, they're able to coordinate the care, potentially keep chronic diseases such as diabetes or hypertension from becoming exacerbated to the fact where that person needs to go go into the hospital. And that in theory then will lead to less hospitalizations and more preventative care, which can conserve costs down the road. So that's kind of an interesting point in terms of overall economics. But I also think that it's important to take a look at physician incomes and compare it to the general population. I can remember a conversation that I had with one of my fellow trainees was when I was a trainee and we were talking about what percentage of the United States households earn more than 100,000 per year. And I asked this person that question and they answered, well, I think it's around 50%. And of course, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, I wanna just let you think about this for just a couple seconds before I flash the answer. And here is the answer, it's around 2%. So in 2008, roughly one in 50 households took home more than $250,000 per year. Now the fact is is that when we think of our incomes as physicians, we're in a pretty high percentage compared to the overall population. So then people say to themselves, well, does that really matter? Certainly, we're all aware of the fact that in general, income tends to be correlated with educational level and it tends to be correlated with the degree of training. So then it's worthwhile to take a look and see, well, should physicians be compared to others with comparative professional degrees? And here's the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics that basically has some very interesting data on income level versus education in the United States in 2012. And what we can see is that for doctoral degrees and for professional degrees, there is a median weekly earnings of between 1735 and 1624. If we calculate that out down in the bottom of the slide, we have median income yearly professional degree: 1735 times 52 weeks in the year is 90,000 dollars. So certainly when we think about physician incomes in general, physicians are doing very well, even compared to people that have professional degrees and doctoral degrees. So then the question is, if a radiologist's income decreases, it will still likely remain significantly higher than comparatives with professional degrees. And of course, the question is, how much does that really matter? And that basically requires us to take a look at some interesting data about the relationship of income to happiness level in a job. And the interesting thing is that income is not the sole factor in job happiness beyond a certain level. Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton published an interesting study. They took a look at some data in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and they found the following. An analysis of greater than 450,000 responses to the Wellbeing Index, which is a survey conducted of United States residents by Gallup, Found that emotional well being rises with the log of income, but there's no further progress beyond an annual income of $75,000. Now, what does this data mean? Basically, what it means is that once somebody gets to a certain level and their needs are met, then the incremental income doesn't necessarily correlate with their emotional well-being as much. Certainly, if somebody doesn't have enough money to put food on the table, if they don't have enough money for clothing, if they don't have enough money to have a home that keeps out the rain and keeps out the elements, obviously, things become very important. But once you get beyond a certain level, the incremental income isn't necessarily that much of a greater contributor to emotional well-being. Well, most of us know who Warren Buffett is, one of the most successful investors of all time, and he is quoted as saying the following, I have a lot of friends who have a lot more possessions, but in some cases I feel the possessions possess them rather than the other way around. He also is quoted more recently, That's saying at the Berkshire Hathaway stock meeting, and this comes out of The Motley Fool, somebody wrote, and they abstracted what one of the things that he said was. And he said, there are things that money can't buy. And of course, we all know this, right? When we take a look at, in general, what data says about job happiness, most of the time the things that correlate with job happiness are people feel that they are doing a job well done. Their colleagues appreciate them. They have the equipment needed to do their job appropriately. They feel that they are doing something useful. They feel that their suggestions are taken into account. And in general, those things are at least just as important in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases as income. The other thing to keep in mind is a concept called the hedonic treadmill. And basically what the hedonic treadmill says is that as a person earns more, expectations and desires rise in tandem, which results in no permanent gain in happiness. Basically what that's saying is that as you earn more, your expectations for what you can afford go up. So in other words, let's say that you're somebody who's extremely wealthy, you may say, well, the person down the street has 30 Rolls Royces, but I only have 20 Rolls Royces, and therefore I'm not earning enough. Obviously not something that radiologists face on a daily basis, but the bottom line is that expectations do tend to fall in line with income. And so it's very rare to find a group of people, if you ask people, saying, well, do you wish that you had more income or do you wish that you had more money? Another way of thinking about this is if you ask 10 people in a row, would you be happy if you won the lottery? The odds are that most of them would say, sure, I'll take, I'll take some lottery winnings. That would be a nice thing. Let's talk about another reason why people tend to feel potentially pessimistic about radiology. And one of those things is something called the increasing workload, right? Are we working harder than we used to? Well, here's some interesting data that comes from radiology in 2009. And basically what it shows is that physician work, RVUs per procedure has gone up, mean procedures for FTE, full-time employee has gone up, and mean RVUs for FTE has gone up as well. And we, of course, know this in our practices, that in general we are interpreting more cases than we did in the past. And that's true. But one thing to keep in mind is that we are doing vital, interesting, and important work. And I'm going to show you two unknowns. And I want you to think about the idea of how you approach these unknowns. In general, one of the reasons why this podcast is so popular is because people get to see some unknowns. And certainly the idea of seeing an unknown case is something that is emotionally stimulating, it's important for patients, and it's a way to keep the learning exciting. And the very fact that we look forward to seeing unknown cases is a testament to the fact that our work is interesting, important, and vital. And we're also gonna talk about the fact that increasingly the potential for job variation in radiology is large. So here's your first unknown. Patient comes in, and there's a question about Dophoff tube placement. Now, where is this Dophoff tube? Of course, it should be underneath the diaphragm, inside the stomach, or inside the pylorus or the duodenum. And is it? No, it's in one of the distal right-sided bronchial branches. And so why is that important? Well, obviously, if tube feeding is administered through this Dophoff tube, it's going to go into the bronchial tree, which is certainly not a good thing. In this case, a life can be saved when the radiologist recognizes this, And basically, it's communicated to the appropriate channels. Here's another one. A younger person with a positive pregnancy test and with pelvic pain. So we see in the upper left-hand side of the ultrasound that there's no intrauterine pregnancy. There's a little bit of fluid inside the endometrium. On the right side, we have a corpus luteum cyst. And in the left adnexa, we have a lot of complex free fluid. So what do we have here? Well, complex free fluid, no intrauterine pregnancy, acute pelvic pain, certainly a ruptured ectopic pregnancy is something that we need to consider, which is what it was in this case, and a life was saved. So the point of this is that who doesn't enjoy these types of unknown cases? In each case, a life can be saved. And how many people can say that about our job? It's something that we can say as radiologists, but how many other people can say that? Has anyone experienced the feeling you get after a patient calls or writes to thank you for saving their life or helping them? The answer is that most of us have at some point in our careers, some of us multiple times. And for those of us that haven't, the odds are that at some point you will be contacted by a patient, either by a letter or by a phone call. And that's a pretty amazing feeling that really money can't buy. And that's something unique to being a physician. Certainly there are many other important occupations, But one of the nice things about being a radiologist and a physician is that we are privy to those types of conversations. I think it's also important to realize that the diversity of radiology work is going to increase as well. So in addition to clinical work, there are people that do research or teaching or consulting, quality supervision, administration. Things like capital budgeting or personnel or radiology strategic planning. And there's an opportunity for increasing entrepreneurship in radiology. MRI compatible devices or radiation tracking. Things like looking at operations management and about how do we deal with streamlining care so that we can give the best care to the greatest number of people at the lowest cost. How do we do that? And increasingly, that's going to become part of our work. If we take a look at something called a request for proposal, and basically what this means in healthcare is that a healthcare entity will submit bids to provide a healthcare service. And this happens in radiology too. And here's just an excerpt from a recent request for proposal that I saw pertaining to radiology. The proposals where radiology departments or radiology groups submit their bid to provide radiologic services should include provision for physician coverage of department needs. Quality control for imaging services, assisting with accreditation and licensure of radiologic services, peer reviews, and development of performance measures through a collaborative effort with faculty are all important factors in the bid that potential radiology departments would submit. And so when we think about that, we see that there's tremendous variability here. There's quality control, there's peer review, there's performance measures. And so the bottom line is that the job is becoming increasingly diverse. In terms of our technological developments, we know that that's the case. CT, MRI, ultrasound, nuclear medicine, functional MRI, and potential new frontiers, molecular imaging and personalized imaging that haven't even been invented. So there's tremendous opportunity for diversity. Another interesting thing is when we think about time off. So certainly let me give you a little bit of data about if we compare physicians to Basically, the general population in terms of time off. Economic Policy Institute. After 25 years, the average number of vacation days for United States worker is 19.2 days. Here's the U.S. Bureau of Labor statistics. Basically, what they say is the average number of vacation days after one year, a mean of 10, a median of 10. After five years, a mean of 14 and a median of 15. So if we think about that, really... Our jobs are very competitive in terms of comparing ourselves to other people. And with that, let's take a coffee break and when we come back, let's talk about the commoditization of radiology, what it means and how we can deal with it.